If you would, we're going to be in Matthew 8. If you want to open your Bibles to that, please. You know, I usually preach to bikers. I can't believe how quiet it is in here. <laughs> no motors revving in the background. and No loud fans or anything like that. Welcome to Calvary Chapel this morning. What a, what a great way to start a new year is to be in God's Word, isn't it? You know, a lot of times a person might say, I'm going to change. In fact, this time of the year, New Year's resolutions are pretty much all the talk, right? On Facebook and conversations, dinner tables, friends, all those different situations. You know, and I almost think it's kind of like a joke. You know, I'm going to lose weight this year. Well, last year I, I went on that quest and it lasted till about August. We're going to quit smoking, whatever the case might be. A lot of times we have good intentions, but it's, it's not always easy to do to make a change, is it? So... I entitled this message New Beginnings because with a new year, I think a lot of us really didn't like 2015. You know what, 2015 for me was a banner year. A lot of my friends had a bad year in 2015. We lost a lot of, of friends. We lost a lot of, uh, in the biker community, quite a few people passed away this year. 2015, I, I don't want to go down the whole list, but the top of my list was going to Israel. And then there was many other milestones that happened for me in 2015. But we're going to take a look at a new beginning for a leper, for a centurion, and some others as we look at Matthew 8. Before we get started, I'd like to mention this, that the teaching of Jesus had such a great drawing power, so much that great multitudes followed him. I don't know how much a great multitude is, but I've seen an awful lot of people. When there's more people than you can count, more people than you can guesstimate, I'm going to call that a great multitude. Didn't Thomas Jefferson say truth is self-evident? or one of the founding fathers, but truth is, is self-verifying. And though people may not like the truth, they can't forget the truth. So let's start in Matthew chapter one or chapter 8, verse 1. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. And he said, I am willing, be cleansed. Now, I'm going to stop there just for a second. Jesus is willing. If you don't know him, he's willing to save you. He's got his hand out. I love that. Not only as I'm looking at this, I see I am. That's God. And he's willing. And he says, be cleansed. That's for all of us. That was for this leper at this time, but that's also for all of us. You know, that, that gets me right down at the bottom of my heart. I am willing be cleansed. A message for us this morning. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Now this leper had a faith that the Lord could cure him. And true faith is never disappointed. And you know, leprosy, if we think about it, it's a good analogy for a picture, or a picture of sin. Because it's loathsome, it's destructive, it's infectious. And in some forms, humanly incurable. And the lepers, they were untouchables. They would have to walk around the city saying unclean so nobody would get close to them. Physical contact with them might expose a person to infection. In the case of the Jewish people, this contact with a leper made the person ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. That is, they were unfit to worship with the congregation of Israel. But when Jesus touched the leper and spoke the healing words, the leprosy vanished immediately. He was willing. Verse 4, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, 
But go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. You know, this is the first time in Matthew's gospel where it recorded that Jesus commanded someone to tell no one of the miracle done for them or what they had seen. And it was probably because he was aware that a lot of people were only there because they wanted to, you know, make Jesus the king. They wanted deliverance from the Romans. You know, they would want to make him king. And Jesus knew that Israel was unrepentant, that the nation would reject his spiritual leadership, and that he must first go to the cross. But now under the law of Moses, the priest served as a physician. And when a leper was cleansed, he was obligated to bring an offering to appear before the priest in order to be pronounced clean. And that's according to Leviticus 14. Now it was a very rare event for a leper to be healed. So extraordinary, in fact, that it should have alerted this priest. He should have been on the ball. He should have been knowing something was up to investigate whether the Messiah had appeared at last. But we read... No such thing happened. Jesus told the leper to obey the law in this manner, and he went. You know, the spiritual implications of this miracle are very clear. The Messiah had come to Israel with the power to heal the nation of its illness. He presented this miracle as one of his credentials. One of his credentials, and they missed it. But the nation was not ready for her deliverer. You know, Jesus had a lot of credentials that they missed. We're missing it today. You know, uh, I had a chance to talk to some Jewish people and some uh, Arab people when I was in Israel, and they said, uh, you know, we believe Jesus was a great man. We just don't believe he was the Messiah. And I'm thinking, how can you guys miss his credentials? How can you miss all these things? But they do. So let's take another look at a different guy, a Gentile, a military leader, a centurion who had been in charge of about 100 men. He was stationed in or near Capernaum. His servant had suffered a violent and painful paralysis. The compassion that the centurion had for his servant was unusual because most officials would not have shown such concern for their servant. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him. He wasn't just asking him. He's pleading. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed dreadfully tormented. You know, I'm imagining in my mind, because, you know, I hang out with bikers and stuff like that, what a centurion would look like. And I'm in my mind, I'm thinking a big tough guy, John Wayne style kind of guy. And here he is, he's pleading with Jesus. A man who surely was not accustomed to pleading, but giving orders. But here he is with a humbled heart with Jesus. Verse 7. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. So here we see another case where Jesus is willing again. And that so encourages me. He's he's the willing God. In verse 9, it says, For I also am under, uh, I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now the centurion showed his faith. His faith was the real deal. His faith had depth. And he said, in effect, I'm not worthy that you'd enter into my house. Anyway, it isn't necessary because you, Lord, could easily heal him by saying the word. And, you know, the centurion, he knew about authority. 
He's taken orders, given orders. And he says, how much more would your words have power over my servant's illness? As much as powers that centurion had, how much more would Jesus have with his words? Verse 10, then Jesus heard it and marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. That's a pretty nice thing to say about somebody, isn't it? That he hasn't found faith anywhere. And here's this Gentile guy, rough, tough John Wayne guy, in charge of many people, bossing people around, telling them what to do. But he had that kind of faith. This is one of two times that Jesus is said to have marveled. That he marveled. The other time is at the unbelief of the Jews. So here we have two different marveling, one at faith and one at lacking of faith. In verse 6, it says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Well, here the Lord's marveling at, his, at the centurion believing, at his own people not believing. And the Lord's about ready to let him have it. Let's take a look at 11. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here Jesus points out that in the coming kingdom, Gentiles will flock from all over the world to enjoy fellowship with the Jewish patriarchs. With the sons of the kingdom, or while the sons of the kingdom, would be thrown into outer darkness where they would weep and gnash their teeth. Now when I talk about the sons of the kingdom, it's those who are Jews by birth who profess to acknowledge God as king, but who are never truly converted. You know, God has no grandchildren. Each of us come to him and we're not saved by religion that we're born into or professing to acknowledge God. We must, it's must in all capital letters, we must be born again. I call it the three R's. First, we have to realize that we're sinners and we all have a need for a savior. Without that, nothing can really happen. We have to realize we have a need. You know, and put me at the top of that list. We need to repent. We need to turn away from sin. You know, in, in biker circles, I tell them, all right, you, you need to slam on the brakes. You need to do a 180. You need to burn rubber in the other direction. And the guys get that. Some of them do. Some of them are still smoking their tires just because they like to do that. But a lot of them, there's guys that I've met that have done that. And there's guys that I've met that slam the brakes on and look the other way and just couldn't do it. Praying for those guys. The last R is receive. You know, Jesus has a gift for you, the gift of salvation. You need to receive that gift. As a result, you'll have a relationship with him that is saving. That, my friends, is knowing him. That's how we need to know the Lord. Now back to verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the servant was healed that same hour. There's something to maybe take note of. The servant was healed even though Jesus was some distance away. And we see in this picture of Christ's present ministry, he is healing us. He's not here bodily, is it? Is he? But he's here, being able to heal us. Gentiles of all people, he's healing us from the paralysis of sin. Because sin does paralyze us, doesn't it? Although he himself is not here, he's healing us. 8.14, now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. 
So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. I like the idea of that, huh? You know, uh, Jesus touches her hand that the fever vanishes. And ordinarily, I don't know about you, but you know, when you have a fever, usually I'm weak after that. The last thing I want to do is get up and serve somebody. But this cure was so instantaneous and so complete that she was able to get out of bed and serve him. And what a nice thank you for what the Savior had done for her. You know, we should imitate her. Whenever we're healed by serving, serving Jesus, serving God with renewed dedication, renewed vigor. You know, how often do we get in a slump? God does something cool for us. Sometimes we're excited about it and we want to serve him even more. Sometimes we're just like, oh, you know, I got lucky. Well, you know, it's not luck when something good happens. It's a blessing. And we should be jumping for joy. You know, uh, when we get saved, we should be shouting it from the rooftops. That's what I felt like in Israel. I got on the Mount of Olives. And all I wanted to do is, you know, shout for joy. What a mountaintop experience on the mountain, right? Mount of Olives. It was incredible. Let's take a look at 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So in verse 16, at evening, when the Sabbath was over, the people, they, they surged to him. And many victims of demon possession were along. And Jesus cast out the spirits with the word, and he cured the sick. So, so far in this chapter, we've seen four miracles, four new beginnings. The first one we saw was the healing of the Jewish leper with Jesus present. He was there. The second one we saw was healing of the centurion servant with Jesus at a distance. The third we see is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law with Jesus in the house. The fourth one we see is healing of all demon-possessed and sick with Jesus present. Think about the Lord's ministry and how it fits with these miracles. Number one, Christ in his first arrival, he's ministering to the people of Israel. In the time of the Gentiles, Jesus is absent, healing not there, just like the centurion. In the second coming, he'll enter the house restoring Israel and heal the sick daughter of Zion. He's going to heal Israel. And then number four, in the millennium, all the demon-possessed and sick will be healed. So there's kind of a picture there that we're seeing. Now when you follow Jesus, there's a cost. Well, let's take a look at 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, the, the Lord's answer challenged him to count the cost of a life of self-denial. You know, Jesus was always other-centered. And I kind of like the, if you ever listen to Johnny Cash, he has a thing, there was a man. And he talks about it. He, he never went to a university. He never set foot in a big city. He never, you know, owned a house. All these things that we talk about that, that equal greatness. But he was there doing great things for others, blessing others beyond compare. In 8.21, it says, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. You know, the disciple 
He was willing to follow Jesus. Kind of like those bikers when they slam on their brakes and they look in the rearview mirror to see what's in the other direction. But the guy had a higher priority. He had something else he wanted to do. He said, let me first go and bury my father. Let me. Whether or not the father had died really doesn't make a difference to me. The basic trouble in this is, is, is the words, Lord, let me first. You know, he put himself ahead of Christ. And we know that it's proper. It's a decent thing to give a burial for your father. But when it, it becomes questionable or wrong, I guess, when it takes precedence over the Savior's call. When Jesus calls you, we need to be obedient and follow. Let's move on. The Sea of Galilee is noted for sudden, violent storms that whip into a churning froth, and the winds sweep down the valley of Jordan from the north, picking up speed in the narrow gorge. When they hit the sea, it becomes extremely unsafe for navigation. And on this occasion, Jesus was crossing from the west side to the east side. Now, when we went to Israel, we went to Tiberias. It's a city on the Sea of Galilee. I didn't know that Tiberias was on the Sea of Galilee. Um, we had maybe we were up for about 30 hours getting to Israel, and we toured, and then we checked in a hotel room, and then we toured the whole next day, and then we stayed at uh, I think it was Tiberias was the second night. So a lot of us were pretty, we didn't have our heads together as to what was going on. We were just kind of doing the thing. And we had dinner that night. It's a beautiful hotel. It was a fantastic meal. And I needed to go for a walk. I needed to get out and look around a little bit. And it was, it was the Sabbath, and uh, not much was open. So I went for a walk, and it looked like there was a boardwalk down there. And sure enough, there's a body of water. And... Uh, I'm thinking about what bodies of water are all in Israel. I'm thinking about where we could be, and I'm thinking this has to be the Sea of Galilee. So I asked one of the guys, I said, is this the Sea of Galilee? And he said, yeah, it is. And it was one of those head-blown moments. I had to sit down on a park bench, and I had to look out. And if, if you can imagine, if you've ever been on the, on the one side of Lake Winnebago at night, and you can kind of see the lights on the other side, that's what it was like, but it was bigger, and it was cooler. And uh, there was these lights up on these hills that they almost look like little Christmas towns, you know, like when you have the Christmas ornaments out on your shelf. That's kind of what it looked like. And all I could do was sit there and think about Jesus being there, Jesus walking on that water, Jesus crossing over on that water. And uh, the next morning we got up and we went out and we got on a wooden boat and we went out and we sailed the Sea of Galilee. And let me tell you what, that was an experience of, of a lifetime. And I guess it's a good plug. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, Calvary Chapel, do it. Because you'll never forget it. Uh, it's been on my bucket list for a long time, and I was really blessed to get to go this year. The Sea of Galilee is, is, is incredible. And we got to worship out there. We heard a testimony out there. And um, as we're on the Sea of Galilee, I guess that's where I'm going with this, there's a, a place where the mountains kind of come down on one side, and they come down again. There's like a cleft in the side. So we were heading north, and this was on the left-hand side, as I remember. And they mentioned that that's where the storms come from, because think about it, when, when air is moving and it gets funneled into a small space, it intensifies greatly. And that's where a lot of the storms blow up. And I could just imagine, I've been on Lake Winnebago on four-foot wave days, what the Sea of Galilee must get like. 
So here Jesus is in a storm, and you know what? Science backs this up, that the storm could have happened, because I saw it with my own eyes. I got to see where the winds come from, and it makes total sense. And I'm no smart guy when it comes to science. You know, I know how to work on motorcycles, but I don't know much about wind and vortexes and crevasses and all this stuff, but it made sense to me by looking at it. So it was just one more thing to increase my faith in God's word when I saw this. So here we are in 823. Now when he had got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. And when his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to him, but he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So we got Jesus asleep in the boat. And the terrified disciples. Now, these guys, most of them were fishermen. Now, any of you guys, that, if, if I'm on a boat, like out on uh, Lake Michigan, I'm the guy hanging over the side throwing up, right? But the guys that are running the boat, those guys don't get sick. Those guys are, they're, they're rugged, they're rough, they're tough, they've seen bad weather. Well, here we've got experienced fishermen, guys that lived their lives on the sea. And these guys are freaking out because of a storm. So Jesus is asleep in the boat, and the terrified, the terrified disciples, they awake him with frantic pleas for help. You know, and to their credit, they went to the right person. And after Jesus rebukes them for their puny faith, he rebukes the winds and the waves, and a great calm descends. And the men marvel that even the elements obeyed Jesus. How little they knew that the great the creator. You know, a lot of us think about Jesus. We just had Christmas, right? A lot of people think, oh, the baby Jesus. You know, and my kids, there's a thunderstorm. My kids are 10 and 12. And they're like, Daddy, we're scared. And I say, you don't need to be scared. This is like when they were a little younger, not 10 and 12 so much. And I say, you don't have to worry because Jesus lives at our house. And they say, well, Daddy, he's only a baby. What can he do? And isn't it true that so many people see the baby Jesus at Christmas, and that's their opinion of who Jesus is. But when you know Jesus, and when you know his word, and you've seen his creation, he's, he's the creator of the universe. And not only did he create the universe, he sustains the universe. He didn't just make us and walk away. He sustains our every breath, every blink of your eye. Every time the sun goes up, the sun goes down, Jesus is making it happen. He sustains us. And to me, that's heavy. Because a lot of people think, yeah, there's a God, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? He created us and he sustains us daily. And without him sustaining us, not just my mind blown, but everything blown, right? So it's important to realize that Jesus is not just baby Jesus. He's not just the Jesus that we see hanging on the cross. He's not the Jesus that rose from the dead, but he is the creator and sustainer. And if we go to John 1, it tells us that. In fact, you know, we have a minute. Let's, let's go to John 1. Sorry, I didn't give you a cross-reference. When I first got saved, I wasn't sure who to pray to. I knew about God, knew about Jesus, knew about 
Jesus' mother Mary. But I was confused as to what order and, and what. And when I started coming here, I had, I had questions for Dwight all the time. And he'd say, open up your Bible to this page or whatever. And I'd open up the Bible and I'd read it. He wouldn't even tell me what the answer was. I'd just read it. He'd tell me where to go and I'd read it. And there it is, boom, black and white. Question answered. Who's Jesus? Well, in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Without him, nothing was made. Without him, nothing is sustained. That's not in the Scriptures, but that's the truth. And in, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And if we want to scroll down to verse 14, I'm already getting goosebumps. Because this is what this is what got me when I accepted Christ. This proves it to me. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we beheld His glory. These disciples that are being rebuked for their puny faith, they are beholding Jesus' glory in that boat at this moment that we're reading in Scripture. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And not only that, but also John, John the Baptist, bore witness of him. I don't know about you guys, but that gets me every time. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. For the first time in the history of the world, in the history of creation, we could touch the Creator. We could touch the Savior. It really blows my mind. So the storm just got rebuked. Everything's good, everything's calm. You know, and all disciples, if you're following Jesus, you're going to have storms sooner or later. Nobody's exempt. I don't ever remember reading anywhere in the Bible saying that if you follow Christ, everything's going to be perfect. You'll never have a problem. That's just not, that's not the way life is. You know, and at times we're going to be swamped by the waves. But, you know, it's comforting to know that Jesus is in the boat with us. You'll hear people say, Jesus, take the wheel. No. Jesus, let me crawl in the back seat. You drive and keep on driving. That's the way I see it. You know, no water can swallow the ship with the creator of the ocean, the creator of the earth, and the creator of the skies inside. No one can quiet life storms like the Lord Jesus. Can I get an amen? You know, and some people come to the Lord for fire insurance, you know, or for, I see it a lot. People, they want to come to church and they're having problems. And they'll come a couple of times. And then the problems go away, and they forget about Jesus who's sustaining them. He's still there doing it, but they forget about that because things are good. And myself included. You know, when, when, what, what's the first thing that you say when you're in really bad trouble? Really bad, or Lord, help me. You know, it should be, Lord, help me every day. It should be, Lord, thank you for letting me wake up this morning. Lord, thank you that my car made it from my house to Calvary Chapel this morning. You know, we should always be giving thanks and not just crying out and help all the time. His hand is always still out, but why let it go? A lot of people see that hand out and they grab it, but then they let it go because everything is good again. Well, here's a couple of guys that aren't doing so good. Jesus runs into a couple of guys with demons on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he arrives, there's, they're in the country of, I think I'm pronouncing this right, as Gergesenes, something like that. 
And uh, Jesus arrives and, and he meets two unusually violent cases of demon possession. I'd call him a, de- a demon maniac, right? Can you imagine that? A maniac and a demon all wrapped up into one? And they lived in cave-like tombs. And they were so fierce that they made travel in the area unsafe. So imagine that. It's like worse than going through, I don't know, Gary, right? If anybody's from Gary, no offense. I couldn't think of anywhere that's really bad around here, I guess. One thing I might mention, too, when I was in Israel, I never felt unsafe, not one time. Never. I have felt unsafe in my own country. There have been places I've been where I felt unsafe. Uh, But there, not once. So um, I guess if, if these demon maniacs were cruising around when I was over there, I'd probably feel a little unsafe. But uh, Jesus has taken care of him. So let's take a look at uh, verse 28. And when he, had, when he had come to the other side, to the country of Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men, coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce, so no one could pass that way. You know, exceedingly is a big word. And these guys must have been really bad. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? There's another sign, I'm thinking, right? They recognized who he was. But the dudes that were spending the time with him in the boat and that, they they knew he was a great man. They still weren't sure, but here are these demons. So could you imagine the disciples with Jesus and they're hearing these guys, that the demons recognize who he is? I'm hoping they got this little ding, 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 ding thing going off in their head when that's happening, but I don't know. Verse 30, Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine, and they were feeding. And so the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. Here again, Jesus is willing. So many examples of Jesus being willing. Here he was willing to let them do that. And so when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. You know, this really shows us that the ultimate aim of demons is to destroy. You know, think about the terrifying possibility that these two men would have been possessed by the number of demons it takes to destroy 2,000 swine. Can you imagine that? How they must have been tormented. It blows my mind when I think about that. And then here, what happens? You know, what happens next? Well, those who kept them, they fled. They took off. The guys that were keeping the swine. And they went away into the city and they told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Now let's hold your finger there for just a second. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking the whole city came out to hang out with Jesus and say, wow, thank you for making travel safe. Thank you for getting rid of the demons. That was awesome. Nope. When they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. They wanted to get rid of him. I don't get it. You know, Jesus was criticized for the needless slaughter of the pigs when he asked to leave. Uh, He had been asked to leave because he values human life above the animals. If a guy was a millionaire and he had 2,000 pigs and he was sick, 
and he could give up those pigs to be healed, that'd be a good deal, wouldn't it? It'd be a great deal. What if the guy had nothing but those 2,000 pigs and he was terminally ill and he could be healed by getting rid of the pigs? Would that be worth it? Absolutely. Well, here we see two guys that Jesus cures from the demon possession, and they're mad about 2,000 pigs. And if these people were Jews, it would have been unlawful for them to raise pigs. Think about that for a minute. You know, when I was in Israel, I never got to have any bacon. I don't know about you guys, but I like bacon. Um, but whether or not they were Jews, here's the condemnation here, is that they valued a herd of pigs more than healing of these two demon maniacs. That's where their values were. So here we have seen a leper that was cleansed to new life. And, you know, he can now be a member of society. He can move freely about the city. He doesn't have to say unclean, unclean. I'm thinking about this leper. You know, he can probably get a job now. Maybe he's finding himself a girlfriend or something. I don't know. It's a whole new life for this leper. Just think about it. Then we have a Gentile. He's a centurion. And his servant is healed just by Jesus saying the word. You know, Jesus didn't even have to be there. You know, that's how it is now, folks. He doesn't need to be here to heal us. The offer is always open. Peter's mother-in-law, her fever is healed, and she gets up to serve Jesus. What a great example for us. Something as simple as, as healing her fever, and what does she want to do? She wants to get up and serve Jesus. Many are healed that were possessed. Many are healed that were sick. And then Jesus calms the storm. You know, a lot of times we have a storm going on. It might not be sickness. It might be, it might be financial. It might be a, a problem at home. And you know, we can't stop a storm ourselves, can we? We have to have Jesus. And having Jesus along, he has to be in the boat with us first, doesn't he? If he's not in the boat with us, then what? So I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, so you're telling me that if I'm going out in the boat, I better bring Jesus with me, right? You better bring him with you everywhere you go. In the car. You know, everywhere. While you're walking down the street, when you go to your home, he should be there with you. Because when that storm does come, then he can take care of it for you. If it's his will. So Jesus then, he heals two demon maniacs. And after hearing about all these folks, it seems that Jesus can even heal us. No matter what you have going on today, I don't know. But for the believer already, if you're in Christ, there's great joy. You know, as I'm walking around in Israel, I'm looking around at the people. And one of the things I like to do is I like to make eye contact with people and see if they look back. Because I'm thinking about this light and darkness can't dwell together. And it seems like when I make eye con contact with somebody in a crowd and I get to finally talk to them, they seem to know the Lord. They have a joy. And when I look at them and the first thing I do is look away, it makes me wonder. When they look away, it gives me an opportunity to pray for those people. So for the believer, there's great joy. For the, as, and as I said, as I'm looking around, there's an awful lot of sad people. A lot of people that had a long face. And I'm thinking, I can understand it because these guys are getting rocketed and all those things are happening from time to time or, or on a daily basis in certain regions. But where we were, it was pretty nice. It was pretty safe all the time. 
And I'm thinking, they just don't have the joy of the Lord. Not, not all of them, but a lot of people. And it broke my heart because Israel's where it happened and the surrounding areas. You know, you go into Jerusalem and there's proof of where Jesus walked. There's proof of where the temple was. All that's there, undeniable things. And how can you not have the joy of the Lord and be living in Israel? So for those that believe, there's great joy. You know, not just great joy, but shouting it from the rooftops, joy. But for the unbeliever, if you don't know the Lord, this is the best it's ever going to get, is what you have here. And I don't know about you guys, but you know, there's not a whole lot of really awesome stuff around that, I, comparatively, you know. I mean, I know that a lot of us are doing the best that we can. We go to work, we drive a, a car that we can afford, we live in a house that we can afford. I don't, I don't know any of us in here that are living in castles and flying around in Learjets. Um, if you are, let me know after the service and uh, we'll talk. <laughs> Could use somebody on staff at the biker church, you know. No, I'm I'm kidding about that. But, uh, you know, it's the best it's going to get. And what kind of hope do you have if you don't have Christ? I mean, it's okay to have money, you know what I mean? And, and if if you do and you know Christ, even better, because think of the people you can bless. But a lot of us, we're just getting by. We're doing it, we're occupying till he comes. And that's what God calls us to do. You know, and unless you come to Jesus, this is the best it'll be. And he's ready to heal you. He's ready for you to take his hand. You know, it was Christmas last week. And there was gifts given and gifts received. And did you ever have an unopened gift at your house? You know, think about how a giver would feel if they gave, if they gave you a gift and you didn't open it. I know how I would feel if I gave. I only give gifts to people that I care about. And if I gave a gift to somebody that I cared about and they didn't open it, I would feel horrible. I'd wonder why. I went out of my way to get something that I thought you would like, something special. And I took the time to wrap it. Yeah, it looks like one of my kids wrapped it, but I really did it myself. And it's not opened. Well, Jesus has that gift. If you haven't accepted him, if you don't know him, he has that gift waiting for you. And if you haven't opened that gift, you're missing out on the greatest gift ever given. Jesus, he has given himself. He's given himself for all of us. He's given himself for me. He's given himself for you. You know, stop and think about it for just a minute. Make it personal to you. When Jesus went to the cross, he did that for you. And if you were the only person in the whole world that needed a Savior, he would have done it for just you. And he did do it just for you. You know, to me, that's pretty heavy. And praise the Lord, he did. Do it just for me. Just for you. That's how personal it is to me, salvation and knowing Jesus. So, yeah, he, it's available to everybody, but he did it for me. I truly believe that he had me in mind when he went to that cross. He had you, each one of you individually, in mind when he went to that cross. The creator of the universe, there's no doubt he could have. So in this new year, why not start a new beginning? A new relationship with Jesus? You know, the gift is there. It's beautifully wrapped. And what's inside of it is incredible beyond comprehension. And it's ready for you to receive it. 
So all you have to do is ask him into your heart to reveal himself in a mighty way to you. You know, miracles are still happening, not just in the Bible here. Miracles are still happening. New lives, new beginnings, and that relationship with Jesus. Now, if you're not sure, we talked about it a little bit earlier. If you're not sure, they, think about it. If you died walking out the doors of this place, would you go to heaven? I can say that I'm sure that I would, and not because of I'm up here preaching, and not because of anything I've done for Jesus, because none of that matters. But because I've accepted him, I believe who he is. That he was born of the virgin, that he lived a perfect life. That he was sent to the cross. And you know, they scourged him beyond recognition. They couldn't recognize him as a man. And they were hoping to get a confession out of him. He had nothing to confess. In the biker community, I've been to biker events where there's been fights happening. I've seen men bludgeoned where their face was swollen up to double the size of their normal head in spots. And these guys, their eyes weren't open. I know I'm getting graphic, but I think I need to go there. Jesus was beaten beyond that. And he took that willingly, laid his life down for us. And he went to the cross. It's amazing that he even could make it to that. And even more important than that, I got to see where he was crucified in Jerusalem, in Gethsemane. Even more important than that, I saw the grave, and I got to walk in. And I looked around, and you know what? There's nothing in there, except for people taking pictures. And on the way out of that open, empty grave, it said, He is not here, for He is risen. That's the most important part. Because without Him rising from the dead, we're all spinning our wheels. But He did rise from the dead. And that gives us an opportunity to accept him or to not. So if you're not sure that you'd go to heaven based on believing in Jesus and what the Bible tells us, not on your own good works, just on what the Bible says, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to recognize that you do need a Savior. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. It's not a question about how big of a sinner that you are. Every one of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Sinning is missing the mark. And I'll tell you, I'm the first one that has missed the mark amongst all of us. So I recognize that I did have a need for a Savior. After that, we need to repent. Repentance is a big word. They like, you know, you don't hear it that often. And when you do hear it, if you're a street person or a person like I minister to bikers, they don't know what repent means. They know it's a big fancy church word. Well, repent means slam on the brakes, turn around and go in the other direction. Stop doing what you're doing. Well, I don't know if I can do that, Tommy. You know what? You probably can't. But you can with Jesus in the boat. You can with the strength of Christ. So you need to repent, turn around, stop doing what you're doing that you know isn't pleasing to the Lord. Stop missing the mark. And after that, we need to receive that gift. And when we receive that gift, he comes and he hangs with us. And he's our best bud. And you can be driving down the road on your motorcycle and you smell the morning dew, you know, these beautiful smells that you only get riding a motorcycle, right? Or a convertible maybe with the top down. And you can say, thank you, Lord, that's awesome. That's, you know, you're hanging with Jesus. 
It's not just somebody you come and pray with on Sundays. It's not somebody that you just pray with when you're eating before a meal. But every moment, it says pray continuously throughout the day in the Bible, right? Pray without ceasing, it says. How do you do that? Well, think about if you're hanging with your best friend all day long. You can be talking to him, right? Thanks, Lord, that car didn't just hit me. Thanks, Lord, for this delicious food that I had for lunch. Thank you for providing for me, Lord, so I could have a car, so I could drive to work, so I could buy some lunch. I mean, we could go on and on and on in Thanksgiving, can't we? We can go on and on and on and request for him too, can't we? So in recognizing, repenting, and receiving, we can have fellowship with the Lord. And on that final day, when you come and you've been walking with him, and he knows you, you have that relationship, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or if you don't know him, he's going to say, go away for I have, never, I have not known you. I want to hear the well done, good and faithful servant. I want that hug when I open my eyes in eternity. And I hope that you do too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word today. We thank you for the many blessings that you give us. And Lord, I pray for anybody who may not know you, that they would know you more or know you in a new and mighty way. As we start a new week, I pray that our focus would be on you and that you'd go before us and clear the way so we could focus more on you and that you'd bless us and continue to provide for us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.